0: listener supported WNYC Studios Hey
1: everybody if you're loving this show and I hope that you are do us a favor go rate it wherever you're listening on your podcast app and then also sign up for the newsletter you can go to the stakespodcast.org and get on the list I'm Kai Wright and these are the stakes in this episode, Black is back.
2: So, Kyright, Christopher Johnson. Did you, you, where did you grow up? I grew up in Indianapolis. Did you get into hip-hop when you were a kid? I did. I mean, I wasn't,
1: like, one of those, like, heads, you know? Like, I wasn't, like, steeped in any music. Um, I just remember the Fat Boys, I can say that, was the first, like, group. I was like, yeah, Fat Boys are back. Right.
0: It's to you as
2: a human being. To... I I I've never heard anyone say fat boys was there like entree I, <laughs> to hip hop. I'm not knocking it. That's just different. Uh,
1: that's just that I because I it may have been because I was young and they were silly and fun, you know, and like
2: And do you remember when you started getting into hip hop that was maybe a little more serious or even <laughs> a political? Little,
1: a little more advanced. Yeah, well, not
2: advanced, just just different. I mean it's a public enemy, and you're like,
1: whoa.
3: I got a mm-hmm. leave from the government the other day, I opened and read it. it said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. Conser me, giving a damn. I said never. Here
2: is a land What was it about, especially about public enemies' music and their style or whatever that drew you in? I mean, they had this stuff
1: to say, you know, and I was of an age, you know, like, what do I have to say? What do I what do I think of the world, you know? Like, you're sort of right at that point where, you know, your parents have shaped your worldview. Um, I was going to white schools. They had put me in these white schools to go get the resources, you know. Um, and so I was had been experiencing this stuff around race my whole life. And here was people who were like having a conversation about it.
2: I don't know, it hit right at the right age for me where I sucked it up. Yeah, you and me both, man. I mean, you know, then you had A Tribe Called Quest and Jungle Brothers and De La Soul, this black bohemia invoking black pride Mm. and Africa, a.k.a. the motherland, Right. right? And all of these groups were part of this musical movement that came to be known as conscious rap. Right.
1: And looking back at that moment, I wonder where it came from. Because the thing is, it really was important to me, like, as a young Black person trying to figure out the world, Mm -hmm. this music was a big part of how I did that and developed this sense of being proud in, like, my Blackness as a political identity. Yes, sir. And I wonder where that happened.
2: You know, it's a good question. I was actually wondering the same thing. I mean— of course, there's definitely political and social consciousness and rap music today. Right. And then when the rapper Nipsey Hussle was killed, his death, it seemed to reignite this ongoing conversation about gun violence, especially right. in black and brown communities. But this era, the one that we're talking about now, this was the first big wave, right? Mm-hmm. It felt like it was from the streets and it was dealing with what our communities were really going through. And so what I wanted to know was, where did that consciousness in conscious rap come from? And then where the hell did it go?
3: So you know what I did? What? How, how you like me now? I called the Kumo D.
1: Shut
0: up!
3: Like check one, two. Kumo D. <laughs> I was born a Leo, bro. Star. <laughs>
2: You hear folks talk about old-school rap. Well, Kool Moe Dee started rhyming in 1977. (laughs) This is when hip-hop was still this punkish, insular party and art scene in New York's Underground.
3: I come from the school of hip-hop where it's literally two turntables and microphones and no routines or whatever ahead of time. So you really had to earn your audience. But hip hop is street
2: music. Right, so rappers were bound to start talking about what was happening in their neighborhoods on the streets. Exactly, and in the early 1980s, hip hop started zooming in on social problems. Like the rest of the country, New York was crawling out of two national recessions, there was a double-digit spike in unemployment. At one point, nearly one in five black New Yorkers was jobless. And then, in 1982, here comes Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five with their classic, The Message. Got a education double-digit inflation Can't take the train to the job There's a strike at the station
3: On King I think that was the first time we even saw hip-hop in a space that was outside of just partying. So starting to talk about things in the neighborhood was something that was bubbling, but it wasn't a lot of pop success with that.
0: How low can you
3: go? And then, in
2: 1988, Public Enemy dropped their second album, It Takes a Nation of Millions, to Hold Us Back. This is considered one of the greatest rap records ever. Militant, pro-black, anti-crack hip-hop, peak conscious rap.
0: back we're gonna win, it out.
3: Once everybody saw that it could be successful, then it became the best of both worlds. You could have the pop and commercial success and still talk something conscious. So if you were a valid artist, you would have to have something that dealt with some kind of consciousness.
1: And there was a lot to be conscious about, right? I mean, this was the mid-1980s. Crack cocaine is raging. Mm -hmm. There's all the addiction. There's all the war on drugs that's coming out of that and death and everything in its wake.
2: Yeah, so I went looking for a test case. I went looking for this time when hip-hop artists answered a call to action, when they used their art and their voices to push for social change. And I found that moment. So this is 1988, cool modi
3: goes on this big tour it was called the dope jam tour and it was a uh, headline by myself rakim and dougie fresh biz Marquee
2: performed at dope jam so the krs1 ice t big daddy kane all artists who either were or would soon become some of the biggest names in rap music
3: we literally were having you know i guess a kid in candy store kind of fun laughing and Telling each other what we loved about each other, so it was that kind of summer.
4: Yo, Fab Five Freddy, welcome to Yo, MTV Raps. I got a mega posse chilling with me right now.
2: Dope Jam makes its last stop on Saturday, September 10th, and it's booked at an arena about 25, 30 miles east of Manhattan. We're getting ready to go in the Nassau
4: Coliseum where the Dope Jam tour is getting ready to get cold in effect. We got
2: into- Hip hoppers came from all over New York for Dope Jam. Ann Carly was one of them. As an executive for Jive Records, Anne went to a lot of hip-hop shows. She knew this crowd, mostly black and Latino, young and mad stylish.
5: People dressed up. You wore your best clothes. That was where you, you know, wore your Cazal glasses and, you know, your best coat and your gold chain and everything like that.
2: As Anne headed into the Coliseum, she starts to get her first sense of what this night was about to turn into.
5: I saw a bunch of older guys that I was pretty sure weren't fans, and I actually said to my two colleagues, something's off here. You guys, be careful.
2: 10,000 heads packed this coliseum. And right when the show was really getting hot, Kumodi, who's sort of backstage, you know, but he
3: can still see the crowd, he sees these fights breaking out all over the coliseum. There's a posse of guys running around, snatching chains, literally scoping and looking and tapping each other and saying, there's a girl by herself right there. Uh, We're going to go take her pocketbook and, you know, do what they're going to do. So that's where the the violence started very early in the night. One guy had saw me with my goal on, so he reached for my bracelet. So when I turned, I grabbed him.
2: A fan later told the film crew about all the madness that went down that night. Once
3: I grabbed him, a whole crowd rushed behind me. It was just bodies flying at me. And I didn't realize I was stabbed until, you know, it was all over. But by this time, my bracelet was gone, three chains were gone, my gold watch was gone. When I go into the first aid office, it's crowded. You know, full of people that had been stabbed and cut.
2: And Carly ran for cover.
5: I ended up with Dougie Fresh's mom and grandmother. And we were kind of hiding underneath some folded up bleachers, trying to wait until things kind of calmed down and cleared out.
2: By the end of the show, a dozen people had been injured. The worst part of this, a 19-year-old Bronx kid was stabbed in the heart and killed.
3: But I did hear that somebody died from the audience, and I'm like, wow, to go to a concert and lose your life is absolutely ridiculous. Just
2: to put this in a little bit of context, in 1988, this is the same year as the Dope Jam tour, nearly 1,900 people were killed in
4: New York. Seven innocent people were injured in an August gun battle involving M-16s. Police
1: and it's also the end of the Reagan era, and mm-hmm. that means with the war on drugs, you've got this hyper-militarization of black neighborhoods and the cracking of skulls and all of that, and people are really feeling it, right. and at the same time, the wealth gap that we're familiar with now— This is where it really started taking off, that we started to see this split in the American economy, Mm -hmm. and conspicuous consumption is back.
2: It's in because everybody's trying to look like rich people. Exactly, and for a group of artists and industry people, that Coliseum show, and the way that the press covered it, this was the last straw.
5: First, let's take a look at the news. The most disturbing story of the week was actually a recurring one, the alleged cause and effect connection between rap music and concert violence.
2: One of the guys who was was at Dope Jam, he's reading the coverage and he
0: is fuming. Uh, my name is Nelson George. I'm a writer and a filmmaker.
2: Nelson was the black music editor for Billboard magazine.
0: This particular incident really, um, really irked me, and I remember the coverage of it really got me. I just remember calling a few people, thinking maybe there's a way to do something about it. I remember speaking with Ann Carley
5: Nelson called me up and said, can you believe these headlines are blaming the music? And I said, Nelson, I was there. And so we thought, what can we do? Because it's not the music. The fans didn't just erupt into do violence by the music.
2: Nelson wanted to set the record straight. It was time for rappers to define the problem,
0: he would later write, and defend themselves. How do we organize a community of hip hop to do a couple of things? You know, counteract the media narrative that rap equated to violence speak about the criminal element at rap shows and not to criminalize the entire audience, which is what was happening.
2: So Nelson and Anne started recruiting a small, influential group of industry people. They huddled at Ann's office in a New York City brownstone.
5: You know, that first meeting, we didn't have enough chairs. So people were just sitting on the floor and, you know, and talking.
2: They called themselves the Stop the Violence Movement, and their goal was to use rap's growing influence and celebrity to try to counteract some of this violence. And the group actually got inspiration from a pop song.
1: There comes a time when we heed a certain call.
2: We Are the World had come out just a few years earlier. It features some of the biggest artists of the era in chorus on a charity record. Nelson, Ann Carly, and the rest of their organization decided that they would make a We Are The World for hip-hop. It would be an all-star track featuring rap's leading voices, sending a unified message both to fans and to critics.
0: There was no precedent, really, for something like this, certainly not in hip-hop. There wasn't a track record of these kind of records being made, especially one that had so many artists from different groups.
5: There were people that I called in the industry who said... Forget about it. You're never going to be able to get this done. It's never going to work out. Rappers, forget about it.
2: But the skeptics were wrong. This project took off. Everybody wanted in. Some of the biggest, most popular names in rap got on board, including KRS-One. He was a key member of the Stop the Violence movement, and he laid down the song's first verse.
3: Well, today- Self-destruction, it really ain't the rap audience is bugging. It's one of two suckers, ignorant brothers trying to rob and steal from one another.
2: They called the song self-destruction. It was a who's who of late 80s rap. You remember Dougie Fresh, yeah. right? MC Light, yes. Chuck D.
0: Uh-huh.
2: And cool Mo D He dropped probably the most iconic verse on this song.
0: Back in the 60s, our brothers and sisters were. Could you gangbang I never ever ran from the Ku Klux Klan and I shouldn't have to run from a black man
5: cuz
3: that So when I said back in the 60s our brothers and sisters were hanging how can you gangbang I, I never ever ran from the Ku Klux Klan I shouldn't have to run from a black man it seemed like it was very very poignant in terms of the irony of having to band together because of the Klan. to band together and now we're running from each other is ridiculous to me
0: When I look back on it, I think it's an amazing testament to the openness of so many artists to participate. There was a sense of uh, hip-hop had a role in talking about what was going on. And hip-hop also kind of speaking up for itself about what was going on in the community and what the role of the culture was in that.
1: And as I
2: recall, this song had some critics, too, though, right? I mean, not everybody liked it. Absolutely. I mean, some folks argued that it promoted this idea of black-on-black crime. Right. Basically, blaming black folks for the violence and the neglect in their communities without a real mention of structural racism.
1: Which is a fair point.
2: Yeah, and Nelson accepts that feedback.
0: He accepts that point. But he still sees something bigger. I feel like it set a certain example for what the possibilities of hip-hop were. You know, it didn't change the world. It didn't stop crack from being sold. It didn't stop people from trying to rob people at rap concerts, but it—it it, it was a statement about intention that needed to be made about what this culture could be at its best, and uh, I think it did that.
2: And from about this point, there's this real blossoming of conscious hip hop from artists like KRS-One, like Public Enemy,
1: and there was X Clan, for instance, you know, which just was the truth. And I can remember, like, that being a space where I could just be, like, Black pride. That's what I'm doing.
4: African, very African. Come and step in Brothers Temple, see what's happening. The will taste the
3: bass flow coming from a zero.
2: You know, this culture just became saturated with all of these different expressions of Pan-Africanism, Black pride.
3: Our freedom of speech is freedom of death. We got
2: and the power. Black empowerment. Fight
3: the power! the power!
2: All right, so back to my question. If conscious rap was so influential and it was so rich and so powerful, then how come it only lasted about 6 years to like
4: 1993? Some say
0: to you know what Ice Cube said? Self-destruction doesn't pay the damn rent or effing rent.
4: Some rappers are heaven sent. But self-destruction don't
2: After the break, Ice Cube. (laughs) Unfortunately, no. But uh, sort of,
1: we're going to talk about Ice Cube. We
2: can, yeah. We're going to talk about iced tea, that's for sure. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Get your drink straight, man.
1: Either way, we'll be back.
2: So to figure out what happened to this first generation of conscious rap music, I called up this guy, Dan Charnas.
1: One of the most well-respected
2: scholars of hip-hop, right? Absolutely. So Dan was at the table when some important decisions about hip-hop's fate were being made. And when we talked, I put the question to him point blank.
4: And what did he say? What happened, starting in around 93 and 94, was the beginning of real mainstreaming of hip-hop. There are two major radio stations, Power 106 in L.A. We have
1: a Power 106. Yeah. Oh, it's go time, man. Justin,
2: Craig. And Hot 97 in New York.
4: The Hot 97 Summer Mix Weekend. We're in
3: the mix. Keep your radios locked or listen on the where hip-hop lives at.
2: Both are owned by the same company, and that company decided in the early 90s to make them all hip-hop all the time.
4: And at first, the music is pretty diverse. But the stuff that succeeds is the stuff that really conforms to this kind of upwardly mobile aspirational capitalist theme. And because now major labels are involved, the search for the different stuff becomes sublimated to the search for the same stuff.
1: So what he's talking about, really, is this is an example of the way space just in general is narrowing, right, for different kinds of rap because it's getting
2: commodified. Exactly. And there's another part of this conscious rap story, too. It goes back to 1991. It's an event that most folks just refer to as Rodney King.
5: Yeah. The three police officers facing felony criminal charges were among a group of 15 who stopped a 25-year-old black man last Saturday night, then beat him, kicked him, and clubbed him, unaware that an amateur photographer was recording the incident on videotape.
1: You cannot overstate the emotion of this moment for black people. I mean, today we're used to seeing these videos of the awful police violence, but I, I think this was the first. It's certainly the first in my memory. Mm-hmm, same. It looks sadistic. Yeah, it's painful to watch. It confirmed everything that people in the street had been saying about how cops were just showing up in our neighborhoods like a band of thugs Mm -hmm. and especially the LAPD.
2: Like an occupying force. Like an occupying force. And then they get away
1: with it. Like a year later they get away with it they're acquitted and L.A. explodes.
5: As the numbers swell they suddenly More militant
3: and started burning things and started advancing. And as I said, they regrouped to the back and then just all together with that big knot of people. I would say at least a thousand people here now.
2: And then, not long after the LA riots, this big controversy erupts over a song. Not a rap song, but the fallout would have these big
4: implications
2: for conscious rap music. In
4: 1992, in the middle of the presidential election, a police union publication in Dallas, Texas, a writer there found a tape of Ice-T's heavy metal group, Body Count. This is
2: Ice-T, the rap star from Los Angeles. He and a bunch of his friends had formed this metal band, and they put out a song called Cop Killer. Right.
3: Cop Killer!
2: Cop Killer mentions Rodney King. It mentions Daryl Gates, who was L.A.'s police chief at the time. You remember this song?
1: Very much. Okay. Very much. What do you remember about this song? This blew up the world. Like, people were angry. Especially cops. And white people in general.
4: And this was a Warner Brothers slash Time Warner product. So, the editor Writer listens to this song and uh, writes a piece about it, transcribes the lyrics, and also notes that Time Warner not only owns Warner Brothers records and Warner Brothers pictures, but they also own local cable companies all over the country and Texas. So police across Texas join forces and they launch a boycott of all things Time Warner. And they're soon joined by police unions all over the country. And that leads to a nationwide outcry of these sort of more socially conservative forces against Time Warner. How could Time Warner be encouraging this kind of violence against police? And Dan says because of Rodney King, police across the U.S. were on the defensive. And so this they saw as a chance to sort of get the moral upper hand. You know, how police are the victims, police are being persecuted. And it puts great pressure on the new chair of Time Warner to try to defend this. But very soon it became apparent that the Warner labels were going to be asked to provide a lot more oversight. No more surprises. Charnas says this had a real impact on rappers and especially
2: artists with political lyrics. That's because the rest of the industry is watching and record labels in general start clamping down on songs that have these anti-policing messages.
1: Yeah, you know, it's just a reminder that like you can't commodify something mm-hmm. and maintain some sort of political
2: consciousness to it these are just incompatible things mm-hmm, exactly i mean we're talking about this time i remember personally when popular rap music was making this shift to a sound that was almost this grotesque materialism right. it was obsessed with money and with stuff i mean like ice cube said self-destruction that is political rap <laughs> don't, don't pay the f and rent. rent right and there were, there were definitely exceptions, I mean, especially in hip-hop. But that's the way it's gone. I mean, it's gone back and forth. It shifts, and especially now because hip-hop is a commodity. But looking back at this era is important because it reminds us of how hip-hop can influence the way that young Black people think about themselves as Black people. I mean, I remember personally, for me, one of my favorite lines was from this Tribe Called Quest song. It's one of the Q-Tips lyrics where he says... With speed, I'm agile, plus I'm worth your while, 100% intelligent black child. Right. And those kinds of ideas, man, that shaped us.
5: The
1: Stakes is a production of WNYC Studios and the newsroom of WNYC. This episode was reported by Christopher Johnson. It was edited by Christopher Wirth. Karen Frillman is our executive producer. Casey Means is our technical director. Jim Schachter is vice president for news at WNYC. The Stakes team also includes...
5: Amanda Arancic, Johnna McCone. Jessica Miller. Kari Pitkin. And Marilyn Williams.
1: With help from... Hannes Brown.
0: Jonathan Cabrera.
5: Michelle Harris. And
1: you. You can join the team by signing up for our newsletter at thestakespodcast.org. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Kai underscore Wright.